The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to The Ghost Story Guys. Welcome to The Ghost Story Guys. I'm Brennan Storr. I'm Paul Bestel. And this is the show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun has set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 129. And we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about, but can never quite reach. How you doing, Paul? I'm okay. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I am uh, very boring, generally speaking. My life is not terribly interesting, aside from that thing last weekend, which I promised I wouldn't talk about on the main show, but made me very, very angry. Yeah. Oh, you mean? Uh... That's the one. Okay. Yeah. Much quieter today, apart from the construction that's apparently just decided to appear right outside my home. Mm. I was trying to record an episode of, of Book of the Dead the other day, and, and it was just like constant, constant low thunder. And I thought, well, this is a sign that I should go grab my vaporizer and take a walk. Yes. Well, we, we had a similar strange incident the other evening at half past 10, where a giant Yorkshire water lorry decided to start spraying high-pressured water into the drains uh, outside the murder house at the back of, of my property. And so uh, we thought, well, that's a very odd time to be trying to clear the drains out. <laughs> and then the night after, they turned up outside the front of our house. And I was like, are you mad? Whose idea is it to start blasting pressurized water at half past 10 on a Thursday night? What's going on? So coincidentally, I, this, before we recorded today, I went and had breakfast at the diner in my neighborhood. And I was talking to the, uh, one of the gals who works there. And she was saying that she wrote once a piece for her college newspaper about this billionaire in Detroit who is allowing people to stash toxic waste along the river for a fee, of course. Mm. And that's obviously the only answer is that some crooked British oligarch is <laughs> just dumping tons and tons of waste into the Sheffield sewer system while you're all asleep. Well, we, we considered that perhaps we've got another Dennis Neil Nielsen case going on nearby. I was just thinking the guy who did the song for Midnight Cowboy, that's Harry Nilsson. Tell me about your guy. <laughs> uh, Dennis Nilsson was a serial killer um, right. who was caught uh, after he got lazy and just started stuffing body parts down his toilet and flushing them. And uh, he lived on uh, in a converted house on the top floor. And uh, one of his neighbors complained that the sewage was backing up. So the water board came out and the guy, the guy, guy got in the drain and he was having a brudle around and he went, mm, that looks like a hand. <laughs> oh. And, he, and uh, he had a closer look and he thought, yes, that is a hand. So he went away and the day after the police came and the police turned up and incredibly, the entire drain had been cleaned 
as though someone had spent a long time scrubbing it and removing any detritus from it. What luck. What luck indeed. However, they thought, we'll best check while we're here. And when he opened his door, they said as soon as they could smell the aroma of the room behind him, uh, they asked to enter. And the rest is history. Well, if it's going to be happening anywhere right now, Paul, your neighborhood would make a lot of sense. So I will be keeping an eye on the, uh, the, uh, the news from, uh, from Yorkshire to see when, or pardon me, to, to see the name they eventually give this new serial killer. Mm, the chef. Well, who knows? I mean, we, you know, we famously, uh, the Yorkshire Ripper was arrested in Sheffield. So, uh, we've got history in that kind of field. There's a little something of everything in Sheffield is what I'm learning. Mm, mm, yeah, 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 yeah. Caught by complete chance as well. What you're saying is we shouldn't try and get away with any crimes in Sheffield. <laughs> well, um, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> fair. Okay, fair. Well, on this episode, we're going to be telling stories not of bodies and drains, although that would be pretty great. <laughs> uh, we actually have a trio of listener stories, two of which come from a uh, patron, and they're really, really fascinating. One sort of deals with a spirit that seems to follow someone throughout most of their life. And then the other two deal with, well, I won't get into it, but there is a, a, almost a cryptid bent to the final story, which is what we've named the episode after. And I'm really looking forward to talking about that one because we don't often get those kinds of stories in this show and I know so little about them, but really, really eager to get into that. Before we do though, I wanted to say that uh, we got two new, uh, two announcements to make. We're getting married. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> You wish. <laughs> well, you got a better pension than I do, Paul. So, so first <laughs> off, <laughs> first off, we have a, a brand new shirt design. We're doing a big, uh, big clean out of our merchandise store. So if you head on over to T public, you'll find a link in the show notes. You'll see that we have a brand new design called making dead look good. And that is, uh, these awesome little skull or skeletal caricatures of me and Paul drawn by the artist, Mike Harmon. And Mike has done some other work for us, which we're going to be slowly introducing into the store over the course of the next couple months. But they're a ton of fun and there's stickers, mugs, all that good stuff. Uh, and we've retired a bunch of older designs. So those are gone and yeah, it's all, it's all nice and refreshed. And again, that's a T public store. You can check that out via the link in the show notes or at ghoststoryguys.com. And the other thing that we're just now able to announce is that we are doing another audio drama a series of audio adaptations. It's going to be a trilogy called Tales from the Void. And of course, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know, we've done this in 2019 and 2020, although usually at Christmas. Now we're going to make it a bonus episode. It's going to be outside the show's usual format. And it's going to feature, yeah, stories from three different horror authors adapted into sort of the audio radio play format. And dude, I'm really excited for this one because uh, 2020, we did the story, A Nightmare on 34th Street from Paul Kane. This year, we're using another one of Paul's stories. We've licensed his story, Bounty. It's the only Western Paul has ever written. It's a great story. And we have also got two up-and-coming horror authors we're working with. One is Mike Thorne. He's a fellow Canadian. And his story, Havoc, will be featured. And the third is Brianna Morgan. And Brianna is an author out of Atlanta, Georgia. And we will be adapting her story, The Dive. So... We've got, like I said, three brilliant horror stories lined up. Already we've, we're talking to some composers for original music. So I, I'm really excited for this one. It's going to be a massive amount of fucking work because you know, I, I like to punish myself, Paul. <laughs> and so you should. Yeah, yeah, no, fair, fair. I did make that terrible joke to you earlier this week. 
One of several, yes. <laughs> and yeah, so this will probably be coming out, I'm thinking in early July, because uh, one of our composers is work is very busy up till June, So, and I really want his stuff. So I think it'll probably be, probably be July before it all comes together. But uh, yeah, keep an eye out for Tales from the Void, coming soon. All right, and before we get to our stories, we'd like to thank our patrons. This one's for the patrons. Patrons, you're the Nicholas to our cage. Without you, we're just incomplete. And of course, we'd like to thank all our patrons, but right now we'd especially like to thank our latest patrons. They are... Julie Davis. Dylan Sedlasic. Ruth Dempsey. Connie Martin. Virginia M. Amanda Weinbrenner. Jen Lindsay. Katie Damey. Ellie K. Raindancer. K. Maischke. Sharon Kakoran. Julie Eleftheriu. Jessica Nose and Ira Levin. Guys, thank you so, so much from the bottom of our terrible, terrible hearts. This show doesn't work without you. We would not be able to create at the level we do without your support, and we are so deeply grateful for it. If you want to join the team, listen to the end of the show. We'll tell you about all the great shit you get. But we will say, for a dollar a month, you get an ad-free feed, and who doesn't want that? Ads suck, and you can get that at patreon.com. Slash Ghost Story Guys again. A dollar a month gets you ad-free episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash ghost story guys. Now we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back. As we said before the break, we've got a great set of listener stories for you. But before we get there, we wanted to talk about some stuff uh, that has come out of the last couple episodes, a couple discussion topics. And I wanted to give an AI, an update on the AI situation, which Paul and I talked about last time. And <laughs> I, there's a story I forgot to tell it in the opening segment. So I'll, I'll just tell you now because it's, it, it's kind of funny. As you know, I've been microdosing psilocybin since February of last year to deal with anxiety and depression and these kinds of things. Last Saturday, sorry, two weeks ago now, uh, so not last Saturday, the Saturday before, I believe it was, I took my microdose in the morning. I had a little meal because you're only supposed to have a light meal afterwards. After I'd eaten, I was kind of puttering around and because I was about to head to the world, so I grabbed a, a, an edible, just a very, very mild CBD edible, popped it in my mouth, and I started, I started going. And so when I got over to my friend's house, I started thinking, I thought, geez, I probably shouldn't have done taken that at the same time as my psilocybin microdose. Huh. I'm sure it'll be fine. So my friend serves me a coffee and I noticed a couple times during the conversation, I started struggling to remember what we were talking about. <laughs> and I, th I thought, well, that's weird. Is there something wrong with my brain? I keep drinking <laughs> my coffee, which is of course causing my stomach to start to keep to digest more and more. And then I left, I left my friend's house and I started walking back home. I realized nothing looks familiar. I know where I am, but nothing looks familiar. And I really thought I was losing my mind. And then I remembered, nope, no, no, no. You took a microdose and an edible at the same, roughly the same time. And you just drank a bunch of coffee. Now everything's happening at once. And you're seeing the sun for the first time in a week. And dude, I don't mind telling you, I was so goddamn high. 
It was not intentional whatsoever. It was just something I was literally doing to, monitor, to control my anxiety. I just combined it in the wrong way. Kids, I mean, you can, I felt great. I'm not, I'm not saying do that, but I'm saying, boy, I was relaxed. <laughs> I was, I, I was supposed to come home and, and, uh, edit the episode. This, yeah, I was trying to edit the last episode. And instead I walked downtown and bought a burrito and I completely forgot that I had any work to do. I forgot I had to process your episode. I forgot I had to do anything. I was just wandering around full of burrito and tripping balls and having a great time. And then the next thing I knew, I was on tour with Def Leppard. <laughs> That's right. So that was, yeah, that was, that was last Saturday. I, I was just uh, one of those things. I know someone right now is, is condemning me for advocating drug use, but I swear it helps. <laughs> just not quite like that. I wouldn't do th- I, I mean, I would do that again, but not when I have things to do. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, anyways, we've had a lot of really great correspondence as a result of the last two episodes, you know, people really responded to the dream episodes, you know, those, whenever we talk about dream stuff, it's always very popular and really like they've connected. We've heard a lot of stuff from people. And also there seems to be a couple little things that have touched off memories in the Brooklyn episode as well. We got an email from someone and now I don't know if they would be comfortable with us saying who they, who it is. They didn't specify, and I, I'd like to err on the side of caution, but they said that uh, they want to share a dream they had four days ago, which woke them up, which apparently rarely happens. And uh, they said in that dream, they were eating dinner with their partner, their partner's mother, and one of his friends in the partner's mother's house, which is in another country. He said, the food in the plate looked very decorated, and I asked my partner's mother if there was a particular way to begin eating it since it looked so pretty. And she told me to start with one of the pieces on the side of the main piece, which was located in the middle of the plate. I picked up the piece with my fork, but before she could finish explaining it, I ate the piece. And she said that she was about to tell me to, to then put it on top of the middle. Basically, this sort of ritual. And, and he said, I, I had an awkward laugh and said, and apologized. She gave me this eye roll stare. And he said, I was scratching the back of my head in discomfort when I noticed she kept staring at me. And the awkwardness was reaching record levels. My cheeks couldn't keep up the smile any longer. I looked around the table and both my partner and my friend had frozen in place as well. He said, I stood there very confused and scared at this point for 10 seconds because everyone was just staring, not moving. And he said in the dream, he rushed to the balcony as he heard some voices. And then he saw all three of them carrying his body out to unload it to an ambulance. He woke up in chills. It's a strange one. I think dreams where you see yourself having some kind of misfortune are very old anyway. Um, yeah, and there's not much in in paranormal history in regards to that. I can think of a couple of similar kind of stories um, in regards to people seeing themselves and taking taking it as the worst news possible, shall we say? Right. But um, that just the whole build up to it just seems peculiar. Well, see, now I thought of that. I thought one or two things there. I didn't actually mention this in my email to them, so if they hear this they, you know, they'll be finding this out for the first time. But I sort of wondered at first, I just thought it was an anxiety dream Mm. because the person telling the story is from a different country than the country where the mother-in-law lives. And so I thought it was maybe just like a social anxiety dream, you know, about sort of getting a custom Mm. wrong and like looking foolish. But at the same time, there's so much significance around the presentation of food in both dreams and sort of abduction scenarios. You know, the, the stories that like, you you know, you're almost ex- accepting some kind of bargain when you take food. Mm. And I wondered at the ritualistic aspect of what the person was being told. Cause w- again, on one hand, 
okay, so we're talking about just like a social custom thing, but on the other, maybe it's a very specific thing that you have to do in order to make this agreement, whatever it is. It's like a story in two parts, isn't it? Because you've got this weird situation over a meal and then you've got the departing as well, which is an unusual aspect of it because is the fact that everyone else has frozen the point where they've passed out and then they have an out-of-body experience to see themselves being taken to the ambulance? Or are the people that they're with not the people that they're with and what they're seeing is not him, it's something else? Well, I was thinking about that because I, I had a dream after Revelstoke last year. I had a very unpleasant experience with someone in Revelstoke. And afterwards, I dream. I think I, I talked about on the show, I dreamed about being on this black sea and kind of like running out into the water a little bit, almost like I was taking a risk because there was this huge killer whale out in this black sea that would come for me whenever I got anywhere near the water. And I remember kept, it was in the dream. I kept getting further out and further out, kind of being like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> until one time my momentum took me out too far and I couldn't stop myself. And I remember seeing this huge black shape approaching me from under the water. And then I, I, in the dream, I blacked out. And when I woke up, my arm was severely lacerated and I was bleeding quite a bit. And the last thing I remember is being loaded into an ambulance. I think the symbolism of the, the ambulance is not a coincidence. I just mm. don't know exactly what it symbolizes. Like I, I've been talking with one of our listeners about shared dream locations. You and I were talking a little bit about this as well. And one of the places they regularly dream about is an airport. And I've been wondering, is it literally an airport or is there a more subjective take on it? Is, is the airport one representation of it? And I wonder if similarly, if the ambulance, if that's just another way to, for us to understand something that's happening. Symbolizing something and it's appearing as something that we would recognize. And this of course leads to the next email from Chantel. I just listened to the last episode. Love it. I couldn't help thinking of, of some reading I've done on humans, human transgenerational responses as a possible explanation to why we dream of places we've never been. Of course, while listening, I was also thinking that time is linear when we're secured to the physical world, but is that the only world? Are there other dimensions? Are there other timelines? While we sleep, our physical body is static, but our mind slash soul is active. Perhaps some of us are able to travel on another timeline. I myself have dreamed several times of places that have come back repeatedly and a couple of precognitive dreams about strangers, meaning the next day I heard or read in the news of a story that I dreamt of the night previously. I've often been fascinated with, with deja vu. I just find mm. it an incredible, because if you ever have it, it is the weirdest feeling ever. Sure. It's happened to me a couple of times. Can you, so what's, what's an example of a time you've had powerful deja vu? I was once walking down a, a, a road near... Uh, where my mother lives. It was a bright sunny day. And all of a sudden, these two cars went past and they were almost identical. And I just went cold. And oh. I thought, oh my God, I've seen that before. And, Interesting. It, and it literally probably lasted, I don't know, 10 seconds. This feeling, it, but it's, it's like a very, very strange feeling. It's like your stomach turns. It's like being on a roller coaster. Oh, interesting. And you're going down. And, yep. you, and, you, and your stomach goes up. It, that, it's that kind of feeling. And it's a very interesting reaction because some people say, oh, well, there's no such thing as deja vu. But I, I find it very odd that stimuli should react in a certain set of circumstances that causes an emotional response that strong in a person through a, re, a random series of events. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I've never experienced it quite that strongly in terms of like kind of turning my stomach, but I've definitely felt that that almost wavering sense of unreality. Mm. That sort of almost lightheadedness that comes with it. Mm. Yeah. It is a very strange feeling when you think, I've done this before. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's and it's not possible. Yeah, and it's usually very mundane things as well, as I found. My my two incidents were very mundane, nothing bad happened. They yep. were just normal run of the mill events. I, I think most of my deja vu has been the same. The only the only one of any note I, I may have told you this before, but a couple of years ago I was over in Vancouver having breakfast in a coffee shop and there was this group of teenagers, kids and their people in their early twenties sitting next to me. And I, I was just listening to them chatter because I couldn't help it. They were so close. And I was texting my friend and uh, I started to get this sense of deja vu. And my friend says, my friend then texted me and she said, I have this most intense feeling of deja vu right now. And she said, I feel like you're about to tell me something about Italy. And I shit you not, those kids next to me were just, had just been talking about traveling to Italy. <laughs> and I said, well, you just got a little bit ahead of the curve because the kids next to me were in fact talking about Italy. Somebody's third eye was open there. Woo. All right. And we got one more piece of email from Chantel and uh, she just sent us a little piece of information, which I, I, we both really loved. She said that she's seen many ghost cats in the past and she chalked it up to a past animal's energy being in that space. And uh, she also sent us some information on the Saunders Dam because we talked about how whole apartment buildings in Canada sometimes get moved. And Paul, you were saying that's just not a thing in the UK. Mind boggling. Chantel sent us these super cool pictures of these buildings being moved from a town that was flooded in order to uh, make room for hydroelectric reservoir. Thank you so much for sending that. And just, just know guys, we're giant nerds for history. So, you know, especially weird history. So always feel free to send us stuff. Ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. We really like hearing it. Um, yeah. Flooded out villages very much are very much our, th- our thing. Yes. And obviously something that's happened close to me in the Peak District as well. So it was, it was quite interesting to see that it's not just here that that happened. Remember we were talking about that lake that's got that ridiculously high death toll in the States. Yeah. When you were on about moving villages and things like that, that's the one where they just flooded it and left the graveyard there. And people said, oh, it's just, it's just an urban myth. And then they went there and the gravestones are still underwater. No shit. Yeah. That explains a few things, maybe. All right. Well, that's enough about dead people. Now we're going to worry <laughs> about the living dead, which means it's time for our stories. Guardian Angel Visits, from Ashley. I grew up next to a cemetery in an old town in New Hampshire, and have had paranormal experiences my entire life in that house. I still experience strange things today, but there is one story that is different from all the rest. This story completely changed my perception of the afterlife and guardian angels. To begin, I will go back to when I was four years old. One morning, I woke up and told my mother I'd seen a lady floating down the hallway in a flowy white dress. Not too long after this, my mother woke up in the middle of the night and felt the urge to check on me. As she peeked into my room, she saw a woman in a white dress floating towards my bed. As the woman approached me, she floated up and above me, then disappeared through the wall. At the same time, I stirred and began talking in my sleep. My mother described the woman as middle-aged, with a blonde bob hairstyle and a flowy white dress. Fast forward to January 2020. 
My husband and I were on a cruise. We sailed through horrible weather one night. The seas were extremely rough. The wind was so strong we were told to stay inside and off the outer decks. The entire boat made these awful creaking sounds with every gigantic wave that slammed against the hull. I could feel the strength of every wave we were tossed around like a rag doll, at the mercy of the sea with nowhere to run and nothing to do but hope for the best. Finally, after a night of no sleep, we ventured out of our cabin the next morning to get breakfast. We were happy to see calm seas and the sun shining. It was a picture-perfect day. We went out to the upper deck, where people are usually packed like sardines by the pool, but at this moment there wasn't a soul in sight which made for an eerie calm. We headed across from one end of the deck to the other, me leading the way and my husband following behind. At one point I turned my head around to say something to him, and as I finished my sentence I looked forward again. At that very moment, from the corner of my eye, I saw a woman standing directly to the left of me with a blonde bob and flowy white beach dress. She had her back towards me, looking out at the ocean. She wasn't looking in my direction, and I was sure I was going to walk right into her. I instinctively stopped dead in my tracks and leaned back as if to avoid a collision, but as I turned my head to say, excuse me, there was no one there. I was startled and frantically looked around the deck for this woman. I was shocked to see no one else was around except for my husband and I, and he hadn't seen a single soul. Confused, I continued on to breakfast. I just couldn't get this experience out of my head for weeks. Until I made the connection. The woman was middle-aged, had a blonde bob hairstyle, and was wearing a flowy white dress, just like the woman my mother and I saw when I was four. I can still see the profile of her face as she looked out at the ocean. She looked peaceful, as if she was admiring the fact that we were all safe and alive. Perhaps she was keeping us safe through that crazy storm the night before. I still haven't been able to figure out who she is, but I am convinced she is my guardian angel. No one will be able to convince otherwise after this experience. I have a few other stories relating to this topic, as well as some spooky stories from childhood and my current home, but I will save those for another day. I listen to you guys every day and truly appreciate what you do. Thanks so much. And Ashley, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's a really kind of reassuring story. One, because I hate boats and the idea that anyone's looking out for me. It's very encouraging. And two, just again, the notion of having someone caring for you throughout your entire life is, it's a nice thought. I always like it as well, that we can clearly define that whoever this spirit is, they're not more than a hundred. How do you figure? The hairstyle. 1920s, weren't it? The bob? I will nod my head as though I have a knowledge of yeah, hairstyles. Two bald guys kind. talking about hair. <laughs> yeah, right. And now we're going to debate <laughs> women's rights. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I believe it. It came in the, the 1920s. And to be fair, what you've got to remember is hairdos were very sort of matter of fact. So whoever this person was would have been either quite fashionable or quite young at the time. Interesting. That leads us to the question, of course, of if are these people people? You know, were, the, were these were the, the ones who look over us? You know, were they once people, or is this a situation where it's something else and it has just chosen to look that way? You know, it kind of peered throughout history and thought the Bob. Yep, that's me. Well, I think it's very interesting on on several levels. You've got a repeat appearance of a phantasm yep. that someone else saw that seems to be quite caring and supportive and also is clearly fixed in time through its appearance. So there's a lot going on with that. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those things that, uh, you know, we, we have a question for our Q&A later this month uh, for patrons, which is, uh, we obviously won't answer the whole thing here, but they, they ask about what's the most trustworthy evidence of the paranormal? 
that you would see. And, and I would say for me, just thinking about this, like this is a great example of that because it's been verified by multiple people seeing the same thing. You know, there's, there's that one story, was it a Bud Hopkins story, an abduction story from New York City where the person claims to have been taken from their apartment Yes. By yeah, a ship. yeah, yeah, yes, 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 and, yes. And, and someone else claims to have seen the ship? Yeah, there's multiple witnesses, in, allegedly including a high-ranking American politician. Yeah, so there you go. So I, I, the fact that all those people saw this, including the experiencer, you just can't dismiss that. And there's no better, there's no better way because sure, you could dismiss one, maybe two witnesses, especially if they know each other. But mm. when you've got multiple people who are unconnected, seeing the same thing, you have, you, you simply can't go with the bullshit explanations anymore. You can't say, you know, it was swamp gas or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's, that's what's happened with, with Pascagoula down in Mississippi, because that has come to light that several people on the same night that Calvin and Charles were taken, saw strange lights, were harassed by strange things, had similar encounters. Really? And, and they've only come out in the last sort of five to 10 years. So. Just to stop you there, can, can you briefly break down the Pascagoula case? Because I think our listeners may not know. So I think it was October 1973. Uh, Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker went fishing after work. They worked together. Uh, Calvin right. was a young man, teenager, and Charles was in his mid 40s. And it was late evening and they were stood on the banks of a river somewhere where they probably shouldn't have been stood. So when they saw the lights coming towards them, they presumed at first it was the police to arrest them for trespassing. And then they realized that it wasn't a police car. It was a flying object. And then all of a sudden they were both frozen to the spot and oh. three beings floated out of the object and took them on board. <clears throat> um, they then came round with Calvin stood there screaming and Charles sort of came around and said, are you okay? Are you okay? Um, and they were so emotionally shook up by the whole experience that despite their better judgment and what they'd seen had happened in other numerous cases around the States in the preceding 20 years, called the police. The police fetched them in, believed the men were at first perhaps pulling a practical joke. So they left them right. in a room with a tape recorder running unbeknown to them. And the tape recording of those two talking about what happened, uh, I think is some of the most compelling evidence. Because if somebody's pulling somebody's leg, they ain't going to sit there in a room for an hour when they don't know they're being recorded, just going, what's happened to us? Why, why, what happened to us? Why did this happen to us? I'm terrified. I don't understand what's happened. What did the police ultimately do? The police didn't know what had happened. They just knew something had happened to these men that absolutely terrified them. Calvin disappeared for 40 years, changed his name, didn't tell anybody Jesus. about it. Charles Hickson was quite happy to discuss it. And then he passed away about 10 years ago. And Calvin came out when he was at a funeral, I think, and he signed a book of condolence. And somebody said, are you the Calvin? Because he wrote his real name. And somebody said, are right. you the real Calvin Parker? He said yes, and he started to come forward from that point on. And so multiple people, they, they, they were clearly, yeah, they were not the only people to see these lights. No, no, no. At least a, at least a dozen. Fascinating. And there's a whole series of events around that event as well. There was a massive right. UFO flap going across several states in America across at the same time, like from Utah, Iowa, 
Vermont, Florida. Interesting. You know, I, I'm always fascinated by people who speak with authority on the UFO subject, but they only ever reference a handful of cases. You know, they'll, you know, you kind of know you can dismiss them when the first mm. thing they bring up is Kenneth Arnold or Roswell. Because you think, okay, so you know the most basic amount about this, and you're going to tell me now that these things only ever happened in America, and that um, you know it. Uh, there's like been five major sightings. The end, and it, it always drives me nuts. Yeah, yeah. Pascagoula is a compelling case, and the evidence for it simply simply keeps building. It's you know crazy. Interesting. Have you done a show on Pascagoula? I can't remember. I've interviewed Calvin. Right, right. Jesus, of course. So what, what was your take on him? What did, what did you think? Um, I think he's a very sincere and honest man and believes what happened to him happened. Interesting. I don't feel I'm in a position to say what he's saying is true or not. He certainly believes what happened to him. And I think his behavior since it happened does give it credence that something very strange happened to, to him and Charles that night. Fascinating. Do you remember which episode number that was? 36-ish. That's why I don't remember. It's a ways back. <laughs> oh, yes. Way back. Yeah. Okay. Pre-pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> what is that for? The old, the old times. Yeah. The before times. <laughs> the before times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's mid-30s. Our... Okay. One, one of our patrons uh, actually asked if we would start putting a list in the show notes of all the various things we reference because sometimes they'll want to check something out, but they can't quite hear the name. So mm. keep an eye on the show notes. And if you want to find the, uh, the link to that episode of mysteries and monsters, I will include it there. Bad ground from spark hazel. In 2003, I moved across the country to live with someone I'd met on the internet. The move had been ill-advised, full of warnings and portents that it was an overall bad idea. I had stubbornly forged ahead anyway. I had stayed at his place once before, for a week in May. The tiny house had felt eerie and off, for I had dismissed it as a culture shock and a slanting floor. Now that I was manoeuvring among the boxes and furniture crammed into the space, it felt oppressive and overwhelming. Again, I tried to chalk it up to culture shock and the undeniable fact that the relationship, while workable long distance, was turning into a controlling nightmare in the confined space of the aging tiny house on the banks of the Ohio River. Little did I know, everything was going to get much worse. The house was tiny, three rooms over a dirt floor cellar, with a spring in one corner that caused a trickle of water to seep out under the rough-hewn door, under the wide porch, and cascade merrily down the crooked stone steps and into the narrow street when the rain was particularly hard. Originally, the summer kitchen for the large three-storey house next door, sometime between when it was built in around 1840 and in the early part of the 20th century, had been converted into a tiny little cottage. The spring seeping into the cellar floor was causing the corner of the house to slowly sink, tilting everything down the steep hill on which it was built. The back of the cottage was dug into the hillside, the small rear terrace bank with a rough-hewn stone wall. The front of the cottage was well above the grade, steep wooden stairs leading to a wide porch that ran the length of the house. Because it was originally an outbuilding for the larger home, there was only a small stone path edged by a crumbling dry stone wall between them. Like I said, the place felt off from the start. Not long after I moved in, we got a dog. The backyard, while large, 
was not really fenced and far too steep to be of any real use. Very active CSX train tracks marked the rear border some 20 yards up the hill. About 50 yards further east along the tracks was an abandoned cemetery full of headstones in German. Stuff with Spanish flu and Cincinnati race riot victims. But that's another story. So when the dog had to go out, you had to take him on a leash and wait while he did his sniffing and his business. I hated it. The tiny back terrace was in full, clear view of the house next door, and it often felt like the only thing keeping something horrible at bay was the ancient and uneven stone wall between the two properties. It just seemed to loom there, whitewashed with black windows staring down at you in the middle of the day while the dog wandered and found a good spot for a constitutional. It was owned by an evangelical preacher, and he rented it to parishioners who were down on their luck. Neighbourhood rumour had it that he had lived there a decade or so before, until his wife went crazy and tried to kill herself and the children. No one who lived there seemed particularly stable. The place was divided up into two apartments, one on the first level and one on the second, with an empty attic space that was never rented. Each floor had a couple of the long, narrow windows of the time that faced our house. All except the third floor were screened with heavy curtains, or the slightly nuttier tin foil. Not long after I moved in, we were awoken in the middle of the night by the sound of emergency vehicles. We stepped outside under the pretext of walking the dog and spoke with an officer at the edge of our property. He was eager to share. The father of the family renting the ground floor apartment had gone on a drunken rampage and beat the wife severely. He was being taken to jail and she to the hospital. According to Officer Friendly, there were mental health and drug addiction issues with the parents and the conditions in the apartment were ugly. Lots of neglect and filth and the children were going into protective custody. Whatever happened that night, the couple never returned, and the landlord cleared out their apartment onto the street for the scavengers and trash collectors and set about renting it again. The next set of people to rent the ground floor apartment were a middle-aged woman and her daughter. They were typical evangelical Baptist types, long hair, long skirts, Bibles. They were nervous and quiet, and whatever it was in the house seemed to be leaving them alone, at first. The second floor tenants never stayed long, always moving out after a few months. Soon, the landlord's nephew took the second floor apartment. He seemed to like hanging out in the narrow walkway along the side of the house. He was always there with his beer and a smoke when I went out with the dog or was leaving the house in general. He seemed to take an interest in our property and me. It seemed friendly enough, if sort of unnerving at first. He would lean over the knee-high wall and talk with me while I was on dog duty, even offering to mow our extremely steep and overgrown lawn. I took him up on that offer. That lawn was a bitch. After a while, I asked him about the third floor, if anyone had that apartment, because sometimes I saw movement and a pale face staring out of the attic window. He told me that no one lived up there, or even went up there, because there was a powerfully evil ghost up there from around the time the house was built. He went on to tell me that it had driven all the people who lived in the third floor crazy, and had even caused evil things to happen in the second floor apartment, but that he was strong in Jesus, and it wouldn't affect him. All the Satan and Jesus talk well, was a bit much for me, so I just smiled and took the dog back inside. I tried to avoid looking up at the third floor window anytime I went out anymore, but if I did happen to catch it, there was always some faintly glowing shape just inside the glass. That winter, I became pregnant with my first child. Around the same time, my boyfriend admitted that he had lied about quitting smoking, and after a huge fight, I told him that he could smoke outside, but not inside. He would always take the dog out with him, and I was so glad I didn't have to stand in the freezing cold avoiding the house ten feet from our patio. 
I slept on the couch a lot during my pregnancy or in my recliner. It was just more comfortable and the relationship was crumbling. Many, many nights I would be dozing only to be woken by whispers on the patio or a tapping on the window over the couch that looked out onto her back terrace. It was monumentally creepy, but I had no real option to move out, so I just kind of ignored it. I found the neighbor on her patio a few times, usually with an excuse about shoveling snow or looking for some critter or other. We had seen a huge black snake slide along the foundation and into the cellar one day, and there were raccoons, a badger, and a possum that were regulars back there. I usually smiled and thanked him for taking care of it. The house layout was odd. The front door opened off a large, wide porch into the living space. If you continued straight, you'd walk along the wall that bisected the house. This path was delineated by hardwood flooring. The rest of the living space had carpet. At the end of this path, you stepped down one small step and had the option of going forward into the tiny bathroom, left out of the back door onto the terrace, or right into the kitchen. The living room was one half of the house, with the door to the bedroom next to the front door, opening directly into the living space. The house was only really three rooms, all very small. The living room furniture was arranged to further mark the path from the front door to the kitchen bath area. My recliner sat on the edge of the hardwood, and I would often hear footsteps walk from the bedroom, along the wall, past my head and then stop in the small space between the kitchen, bath and back door. I would feel the passage of air and hear the rustle of fabric. If I opened my eyes there would be nothing there, but I could still hear and feel it. I noticed that this never seemed to bother the dog, or our two cats, so I decided it was benign. The tapping, however, sent the dog into hyper-alert mode. He would get up, growling, and pace along the wall, and sit and stare at the back door any time it happened. The back door had glass panes in the upper half, so when you walked past to the bathroom or the kitchen you could see out. Often I would glance out to see the third story window glowing faintly, or once lit up as if there was a light on in the attic. That light stayed on for a week or so, so I have to assume it was a living person in the attic, despite being told no one was up there. In the early summer, we were again woken in the night to emergency vehicles. This time, the neighbour came over and said that the daughter of the ground floor tenant had slipped into a diabetic coma and the mother had just been praying over for a week or so. Someone from their church had called in on a welfare check when they missed Saturday service, and the officer had found her. The mother slipped into the ambulance with the daughter, and we never saw them again. A month or so later, the contents of their apartment were on the curb, just like last time. The nephew was the only one living in the house now. The pastor hadn't rented the ground floor this time. We often heard shouting and screaming from the house, and creepy weird music, like gospel music played at half speed at all hours of the day and night. Lights came on and off in all the windows at random, sometimes blinking on and off like Morse code. The tapping on our windows and doors grew louder and more frequent. Then one day I came home from work to see the nephew being placed, shirtless and in handcuffs, into the back of a police cruiser. The house sat empty and glowering after that, but I was preoccupied with the imminent birth of my daughter. She was an angry baby screaming and crying for hours and hours at a time. She also refused to sleep. I had a newborn that was getting five to seven hours of sleep a night, and I was utterly at the end of my rope by the time she was a few months old. The only place she even seemed slightly calm was her vibrating bouncer. 
Her wellness checks didn't indicate that anything was physically wrong, and the doctors told me that some babies were just like that. They probably thought I was exaggerating. When she was three months old, I flew the 1,700 miles back to my hometown so my terminally ill mother could meet her only grandchild. The entire month we were there, she was happy and slept for hours on end. I couldn't believe it. I thought there had to be some kind of grandma magic my mom was using. It was short-lived. As soon as we were back, she reverted to angry, insomniac baby. Eventually, I started trying to sleep train her with a bedtime ritual and a set bedtime each night. If she started crying, I waited a few minutes to see if she would self-soothe and go back to sleep before intervening. Since the bedroom opened directly onto the living space, I would put her to bed and close the door so the light and noise were muted. At first, there was a lot of crying before she eventually wore herself out and went to sleep. It frustrated me that there was no consoling her, but I made sure she was safe and her needs were met, and I just let her rail at the universe. After a few weeks, the nightly ritual seemed to be helping, and there was some fuss as I put her to bed, but she fell asleep relatively quickly. I was starting to feel like maybe I could handle this parenting thing. Then, it started. 45 minutes to an hour after I put her down, the silence would be broken by this ear-splitting wail of pain and terror and I would burst into the bedroom, only to have the screaming stop the moment the door opened and find my daughter fast asleep, her much-beloved pacifier still in her mouth. Now, she was an angry baby, going red-faced and sweaty with her yelling, but she rarely cried in pain and never in fear. These cries were different. They were not angry. They were the kind of baby scream that sets panic in a mother's heart. They were cries of agony and terror. They were loud and horrible. This went on nightly sometimes two or three times a night for months. They always stopped as soon as I opened the door. Since there was only one bedroom, I slept in the same room. If I went to bed at the same time, I would wake up to the screams, but as soon as I was upright in bed, they would stop. It happened so often that I started waiting a few minutes to see if the shrieking would stop before opening the door. It happened so often that I started waiting a few minutes to see if the shrieking would stop before opening the door. It happened when I had friends over and they were shocked, saying it had to be my daughter, until I opened the door and the wailing stopped immediately and she was peacefully asleep. It happened so much that eventually we started calling it the ghost baby. The wailing would start and we would pause, turn towards the bedroom door and wait. 90% of the time it would last for a minute or two, then stop as abruptly as it started. No burbling or snuffling like babies do when they have self-soothed themselves, just silence. It continued until I'd left that house and my emotionally abusive relationship, moving back across the country to my hometown. My daughter stayed fierce and strong-willed and still hated sleeping, for I never heard the phantom baby again. Was whatever plagued the house next door responsible? Once whatever was there no longer had tenants to harass? Did some part of it seep across the dry stone wall and into our tiny house? The two properties were tied together in history, if now separated by property lines. Had some horrible tragedy occurred in our house at some time in the past? Something that involved whatever angry female energy lurked in the attic next door, and a baby in fear and pain in our bedroom? Did the spring under the living room, or the limestone in the foundation cause some strange entity to manifest? It was said that the Miami peoples avoided the area, where Cincinnati is now, refusing to cross the Ohio River into what is now northern Kentucky, calling it cursed, haunted with the souls of thousands slain in some horrible battle in the far distant past. 
their name for the land across the river translating to the dark and bloody ground. All I know that all I know is that my time there was haunted, it was dark and unsettling, and I was very glad to leave it behind. Spark Hazel, I would be glad to leave that behind too. What a goddamn nightmare. Mm. I mean, you've got so many things which are said to presage activity or to, or to accompany activity. You've got the limestone, you've got running water, you know, you've got uh, people obviously struggling with, with mental illness and addiction and, and things like this. But it, it kind of reminded me, I was, I was thinking as you were talking, I was thinking about that Bridgewater Triangle documentary you and I were talking about, because I, I watched that last night. And there's a one guy who asks, you know, does the violent history that happened here, is that why it's the way it is? Or did the violent history happen there because of the way it was? I think it was Tim Weisberg who was being interviewed. You know, he, he believes it's, it's more the land than what's happened on it. He believes what happened, what has happened on it is a function of the land, you know, like certain places just attract dangerous things or, or, or rough things. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Cursed land. I'm quite open-minded when it comes to this because it's one of those things when, especially when it comes to uh, Northern America, a lot of people are often surprised that their house is haunted and yet they'll say, well, it's only 30 years old. How can it be haunted? It's not old right. enough to be haunted. But I'm a big believer in haunted land. Yeah. And I think yeah, absolutely. often- I think often, as, as they refer to in, in the Bridgewater Triangle and other places around the world, I think there are certain parts of this planet that are deep and foreboding and mysterious and dangerous and dark for reasons lost to the mists of time. And I'm not really sure what caused them. But I think it's one of those things. It's like the house next door seems seemed to attract a certain type of tenant. And I think all of us in our lives have of known of a house that seems to just attract strange and damaged people in some regards. Um, it's like a magnet for trouble. And I think often, are those people going there because it's the only place that will have them? Or are they going there and they end up succumbing to whatever manifests inside those four walls? There used to be a crack house on my street that uh, this guy I used to know, uh, I used to work with him back when I worked for the Ministry of Education. He lived in this building. He was probably the only upright, you know, so say upright tenant in this place. But even when they would kick people out, they couldn't help it being the thing it is. And, and for a while, it turned out that the landlord's daughter was selling drugs in the basement. So, I mean, you know, as long as there's someone selling crack there, it's going to be a crack house. You know, I think it's definitional at that point. But even after they got her out, the place never improved. It's been bulldozed now and there's a large apartment block there. I'd be really curious to know if there are if anyone there has had experiences because it occurred to me, even the, the fellow I worked with at the ministry, I mean, he's actually gone on to some success in the policy writing part of government. He was a pretty broken guy. And I realized that he fit in there much better than I think even he realized he did back then. It is weird how certain places, I'm, I'm not sure if I've ever mentioned this on here before, when I went to Scotland and I visited Glencoe, I, I stayed in seven different properties over a two-week period, and all right. of them had been booked, apart from one for being paranormal. And the only and it's never happened to me anywhere else in the UK. I felt so uncomfortable I couldn't stay there. We were supposed to stay for two nights and we left after one. I didn't get really? a wink of sleep. I just didn't feel right. It just made me feel deeply uncomfortable. It was busy. There was loads of tourists. We weren't on the battlefield or anything like that. 
Right. I just did not like that place at all. I couldn't get out of there quick enough. I think it's very interesting in, you know, in the account we've just discussed there, I find it very interesting that it starts to be quite benign while she's pregnant. Yep. She can hear footsteps. It's almost as if someone's keeping their eye on her right. throughout that period. And then once the baby's born, this is when we have the, the, the appearance of the shrieking ghost child, which says to me that was it the birth of the baby that created enough energy, enough emotion, enough, uh, enough of a situation that it was able to power something up? Because I'm a big believer in, you know, in the paranormal being energy-based. And I think the house next door might be a false flag. It's just a creepy, weird house full of strange people. Oh, interesting. Huh. Well, I, I wondered if maybe there's something about the jet, because it was part of one property. I, I wondered if maybe this is some indication of the fact that this partner who turned out to be abusive, that he was on the same land as these people. I wonder if it's, if it's all of a piece. Because he really, in the end, it seems like he wasn't all that different from the people in the building. Mm, maybe, but you know. There are a lot of assholes out there, regardless yeah, of paranormal. That's true. <laughs> you know, I don't think we should say that they're all assholes because of the paranormal. I think that we're giving the. I think we're giving ghosts a bad name. <laughs> yeah, you know, you make a great point. You make a great point. <laughs> I'm here to defend the rights of the paranormal and the departed. All right. <laughs> there was there was something else we talked about on a past episode too. There was uh, there was a case of someone who went. I think it was in the Philippines. They rented their family rented a big house. And they would, they started hearing a baby crying outside in the night. Mm. Of course, you know, similar thing here. And it gets me wondering, you know, is there, is there, are there any stories of entities which use the sound of crying children or crying infants to lure? Yeah. Is that, is that a thing? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a thing in the Fae. Come into the woods and find this baby. Oh, look, you're lost and you'll never go home. So I, <laughs> yeah, I do wonder. There's a famous Native American legend, and I just need to remember which one it is. I talked with David Weatherly about it. That's great. that's a crying baby. Give me a sec. Let me get me. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let me get my info. Yeah. So in Montana, there is a very famous legend about a crying baby that can often be seen as well as heard by the banks of a of a rivery spring type place. Interesting. And uh, it would encourage the travelers to come over it. Um, and the traveler would pick the child up and it would still cry. So the, the traveler would place their thumb in the child's mouth to try and soothe it. And at which point the child would then devour them from the digit and eat their entire body and leaving just a pile of bones. And it would fall to the ground where it would then begin to start to cry again and await the next unwary traveler. Fascinating. And they've built a health spa there now. Well, you know, the baby feels real good. It's well fed. <laughs> yeah, David invited me to join him on a trip there, but uh, uh, I, I, said, I suggested we sent a scouting party first. <laughs> the crying baby you can find in most cultures around the world, and often it is a very negative situation. Yeah, I was just thinking that. I was thinking, you know, there's so many different reasons it could be considered. That, you know, I was thinking about the social reasons, of course, you know, crying babies were hardwired to look after kids. But... Yeah. I also just think that, you know, something's fishing hmm? over the course of the last little while. Cause of course I've got a, a bit of a history with the good folk on the show as, as be, has become a fun joke. Um, <laughs> which yeah, was, I've done two episodes on them and ended up becoming seriously ill after both of them. 
Of course. Yeah, right. I forgot about the second one. Yeah, because I caught COVID after doing an episode on this. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm looking forward to whatever I'm going to come down with in August. Oh, what's August? Uh, well, Morgan will be coming back. So she might be, oh, might be trying to finish right. me off. I'm starting to wonder. <laughs> But what I've learned, and I think I've come to accept this, and I think maybe this will be this will make it okay. They're just here, and I, I like I feel like I finally kind of come around. I think we're on good terms, but I think the thing I've come to accept it's as much their planet as it is ours, if not more so. And so, being afraid of them doesn't make much sense, but I think being cautious and polite very much does. And I just think if there's a crying baby, maybe they're going fishing. And it's not that they're bad. It's not that they're evil. It's that something out there is hungry and the tiger eats. A Beast in the Night from Spark Hazel. My story takes place in the depths of winter. We get nasty cold snaps where the cold air from the mountains pools in the valley and gets trapped. It gets foggy and icy cold with not much change from day to night. On the night in question, it was probably close to minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit. No wind. Foggy being in a deep freeze, but visibility was a quarter mile or so. I've had insomnia since I was a child, so it's not uncommon for me to wake up in the middle of the night and just be awake. I'm used to it, and just try to roll with it and sleep when I get tired again. That night I was lying in bed, awake, thinking about maybe playing a game or two on my phone, when there was this awful din. All the dogs in the neighborhood and for miles around it seemed were barking, howling, whining, yipping and carrying on. We get our share of chain barking, but this was different. It was fear, warning barking. The sounds dogs make when there is a threat that scares them, but they still need to try and warn everyone. I looked at my phone. It was close to 3 a.m., and all these dogs are barking their heads off. It went on for 30 seconds or so, and I realized my three cats were in the room, and they are all growling and puffed up, staring at the big window in the bedroom. The light from the church is on, and it's illuminating the room. The blinds are closed, but it's still a good, strong glow. I'm wondering what has the animals all riled up? Maybe a coyote or a mountain lion? The dogs don't go nuts over deer. They're too used to them. This deep in the winter, a predator wouldn't be out of the question. And if it's something like that, I should call wildlife control. So I got out of bed. I headed to the big picture window that faces out into the backyard. There were a lot of boxes and bins stacked neatly along the wall under it, so I can only get to the very left side of the window. The cats were all arranged on the boxes, looking at the window, growling, fur puffed. I peeked through the blinds, looking out over the yard and into the parking lot. There was something in the parking lot. Something weird. Not a mountain lion, and definitely not a coyote. It's big and shaped funny. My first thought is a newfie with wolfhound legs. My second thought is direwolf, but those are extinct. I look closer. A big body, covered in shaggy white fur and long, awkward legs that seem jointed incorrectly. It has paws, sort of, but they look funny too. They're too big and lumpy to be paws. It has hunched shoulders and a weird, round head without much of a snout. All covered in lots of shaggy, thick white fur. It looks, sort of, like an emaciated polar bear. Sort of. That thought makes me realize how big this thing is. There is a dumpster next to the corner of the church. This thing is standing a couple yards away from the dumpster and seems to be about the same height, on all fours. It's just standing there, 
in the middle of this icy parking lot facing north. It's not sniffing or moving or looking around like a normal animal would. It's just there. The dogs were all still going nuts, and my cats were growling louder, but at the moment I'm not really scared or anything. I'm just curious. I'm wondering, what the heck is this thing? It's not a prey animal. I know that without a doubt. Not a deer, or an elk, or a moose, or even an errant cow. It's a predator of some kind, but what? A weird-ass albino bear? A direwolf on stilts? Some bizarre breed of dog I've never seen before? I can't see it super clearly because of the fence. I think to myself that I could get a better look if I go into the kitchen and open the back door. The only window that looks into the backyard is this one so I would actually have to physically open my kitchen door to see out into the yard. I step away from the window to do just that, when it suddenly hits me that I do not want to open my back door, and not just because it's minus 20 out. I have this sudden moment of panic, that I don't want to take the chance one of my cats shooting out the door, because I know, I know that this thing will kill any animal it comes across, and I don't want that animal to be any of my cats and I super duper don't want that animal to be me. I peek out of the window again to see the creature turn around and head towards the driveway that is the only way in and out of the parking lot. The movement is creepy and unnatural. The legs are all wrong, all angles and too long and moving in ways that don't seem possible. It's moving slowly, almost reluctantly, like it didn't want to be heading back to the street, but something was making it. Like it was a dog, and its owner wanted it to finish whatever it was doing and come along. Maybe that's what it was. It was a dog. Someone was walking a weird hybrid bear-wolf monster in frigid temperatures at 3am. Yeah, that's the ticket. The freaked out barking had stopped cold, like it had never been. Usually you have a few stragglers that don't get the hint that bark time is over, but not this time. Nothing but deep winter silence. I pet the cats and then went back to bed. I lay there and thought about what it could have been. I know that it crossed the street, went into the high school parking lot without any of the motion sensors activating, and that it was heading towards the canyon that leads southwest out of the valley. The canyon with the highway we won't take, even though it cuts off 20 minutes of travel time, because it feels wrong, like you are about to lose control and crash, like something is watching you and wants you to crash. It just doesn't feel safe, no matter the season or time of day. The canyon that's littered with failed businesses and abandoned farms, because people get sick or have a run of bad luck that doesn't end until they give up and go back to the valley. The canyon that the local First Nations folks refuse to go into because it's full of skinwalkers. I know, whatever it was, it was headed towards the canyon. So I was really eager to talk about this one with you because I, I don't have much of a background in cryptids. Is there precedent for something like this? I, I know the Bridgewater Triangle documentary talks about a huge alleged dog that ripped the throats out of the ponies that uh, this one particular guy, particular guy approached with, but is that limited to there or is this something you've seen elsewhere? Uh, no, it's not limited to there. Uh, there are numerous US states that have stories of giant wolf kind of dogs running amok. Oh, really? Mm, yeah. I mean, obviously, the most famous weird wolf dog 
cryptid type creature is is called the Shunkawaraki. Um and that's the most well known because we've actually got a body. There is, you know, we've got a specimen of it, whatever it is. Oh, really? Um, yeah, it's just stuck in a legal dispute between two states who both believe they own it, so nobody'll give permission for it to be tested. But that's a weird looking dog, whatever it is. And where where does the name originate? Shunkawaraki. It's uh, it's the the one that carries off dogs. What language does that originate in? It's I, I, I'm not sure which Native American tribe that is. Okay. You can go to most states in the U.S. and there will be stories of giant dogs of some description all over the place. Fascinating. And so this the one you're describing with the the corpse, which is in in legal limbo. Is this the first recovered body of something of this size? Um, I mean, it's not particular. I mean, it's not massive. I mean, it's big. Right, you not know, dumpster not, size like this one. Yeah, because a lot of people who report seeing these wolf type creatures, what they're describing to all intents and purposes is about the size of what was called the short faced bear, which okay. is essentially uh, a grizzly on steroids. Oh, interesting. So that's why a lot of people were getting a bit concerned about polar bears and grizzlies crossbreeding, which they have proven now. Um, right with with the delightful name of Pizzlies, um, <laughs> because they think that it might genetically kick something off again and bring the shot. Because the shot, the giant short faced bear is called the giant short faced bear for a reason, because um, they are considerably larger than even polar bears were. Are Jesus? So when people talk about these giant dogs, they do sound completely out of proportion. I know timber wolves can get very big, and a lot of people. There's a famous clip that does the rounds of a of a of a guy coming across a timber wolf and people have tried to claim it was a a dire wolf or whatever but it's just a a, a bloody big timber wolf because they are massive and if you've never seen i mean this is the other thing a lot of people have a specific idea of how big a wolf is they're massive they are if you've never seen one i would imagine stumbling across one of those in the wild would be terrifying so it's <laughs> I mean, there are, like I said, there are stories, but really there's nothing. I mean, a lot of people put forward that, that they are dire wolves, but I think the other aspect of all this is that it doesn't look right. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't walk right. So it's almost as if it's something trying to be something else once again. Well, I was thinking that with, with Spark Hazel's story and Spark Hazel, I, I want to say, just say how well-written those were. She mentions that the legs don't seem jointed properly, which really jumped out at me. Mm. Yeah, that's a red flag. <laughs> but then again it might it's one of those things sometimes if you I mean you can't explain it because of the sheer size of it 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 should not exist so then you think well what are these things why are people seeing them if if they don't exist what what plane are they coming from then because there has to be some kind of point of reference for them I mean it's possible that this canyon is is some kind of you know wind, we always talk about window areas who's to say it's and- from this dimension you know? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. You know, one of those temporary extrusion into our into our dimension things. I mean, the fact that it was being it was like it was being called. Mm-hmm. I think it's in, is interesting, which actually kind of puts me in mind of speaking of you and I were speaking about the Beast of Jevodan off air. Yes, um, there is that movie Brotherhood of the Wolf. Brilliant film. Oh, so good. It for for those of our listeners who don't know, it's a French action adventure martial arts period piece about the Beast of Jevodan legend. And 
in the way it's depicted in the film, the beast attacks, but it is called, there's a, there's a horn or a whistle that calls it home. Like it's being sent out by somebody. And it kind of makes me think of the same thing, listening to this or reading Spark Hazel's story, the way she said it was like a dog being called home, mm-hmm. you know? So you wonder if there's something out there that controls these things and just sends them out into the world to do one thing or another. And the fact that she, she, that she sensed such menace from it, I mm-hmm. think is interesting too. Well, that, the, that's the most worrying aspect of this. You know, if, if that's what the dog looks like, I don't want to see the owner. <laughs> oh, I hadn't. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Oh boy. And like I said, that might be why it can't, it looks like it's, it's odd in its movement because it's not used to being in our plane. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. You know, it, maybe it's built for some place that, you know, it, it, it was created for some place that's built differently. Yeah. Different gravity or different, who knows? Anything's possible. I, I, you know, I think it's a remarkable sighting, whatever it is. It's, you know, and I, I, I take it on face value. I would find that deeply troubling. And the other aspect as well is, doesn't always happen, but the fact that the animals also respond in a, in a, protective and aggressive manner would suggest that something strange had gone on that night. There is also that. Yeah, of course. So thank you again, Spark Hazel for sending those in. Uh, I really, really appreciate you trusting us with those. And thank you also to Ashley, whose story we started with. And if you have a story you want us to share on the show, or you just want to share with us, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com is the way to do it. We read everything you send and we will try our best to fit your story. If not into the main show, into our book of the dead companion shows that come out every other week. But either way, we would love to hear your stories. Ghoststoryguys at gmail.com is a place to send them. There's a couple other ways you can tell us, but we'll get to that in a minute. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. Hey there, listeners. Before you reach for that skip 15 seconds ahead button, I promise you this isn't an ad. We wanted to take a minute to talk to you about mental health. On this show, I've always tried to be as honest and open as possible about my struggles with depression and anxiety, because even though we've come a long way towards acknowledging the very real damage these things can do, there is still way too much lingering stigma about reaching out for help. And when you start to feel like there's no help, it's easy to start feeling like there's no hope. But Paul has joined me today to remind you there is always hope and there's always help. We're not going to try and talk you out of self-harming right now because we know that's not how it works. Instead, what we wanted to do was tell you something now and hope that should things get bad, you'll remember it and make a phone call or send a text message before you make any permanent decisions. As someone who knows all too well, just how important mental health can be. It's never too late to reach out. In Canada, the number to call is 133-456-4566. In the USA, the number to call is 1-800-273-8255. In the UK, the number to call is 116-123 or text SHOUT, that's S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. In Australia, the number to call is 131114. 
however bad shit seems, it will pass. And no matter what your brain might be telling you at any given moment, and believe me when I say I know this intimately, there are people who love you and people who care deeply about how you treat yourself. Should a time come when you find yourself despairing, please know that we've both been where you are and there is a way back to the world. Take care. Welcome back. Thanks as always to Luke, Sarah, Anthony, and everyone else who's part of the Ghost Story Guys family. Don't forget to check out Luke's podcast, Luke Lore. You can find that on podcast platforms everywhere. And of course, there is another part of the Ghost Story Guys family, which is coming mm, sometime, but uh, we can't talk too much about it right now, but we are, yeah, we're, we're, very, we're very proud to partner with someone who will, yeah, we'll talk more about on, on coming shows. But thanks also to my friend and co-host, the paranormal Johnny Carson, Paul Bestel, host of the Mysteries and Monsters podcast. What's coming up on Eminem, Paul? Well, currently, as this episode hits the airwaves, I have uh, a long overdue return to Australia on the hunt for the Yowie, uh, which was a fabulous chat I had with my good friend Dan down there. I've got the return of Chad Lewis and director Joe Trury talking about Joe's latest film, Paranormal Prairie, which is a, uh, a, a road trip around some haunted sites in Illinois, outside of Chicago. And that's... Uh, includes a rather tragic real-life event that has inspired a, a truly terrifying road ghost. So that's good. Um, oh, and also I've got uh, the wonderful Zelia Edgar will be joining me on an upcoming episode as well. So really looking forward to, really looking forward to finally getting a chance to uh, speak with her. Fabulous. And where can everyone find you online? You can find me on all social media platforms under Mysteries and Monsters. And you can find me, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, both as Largely The Truth. And you can find my podcast, Largely The Truth, with Brennan Store, everywhere fine podcasts live. I just released my first episode of 2022. I had to sit down with Tara Saraban, who is host of the podcast World's Dumbest Criminals, and uh, turned out to kind of be my, my spiritual twin. It was, it was really funny. Tara started uh, her, part, her first podcast, Bloody Murder in 2017, it at exactly the same time as a ghost story guys. And since then there have been a number of, of amusing parallels in sort of our lives, including the fact that our laugh seems to be a point of, of amusement for a lot of people. Apparently Tara's laugh gets, it's one of those things where people write in and say, I just love it. Or I just hate it, you know, one, one or the other. And so uh, we had a great conversation. We talked about for two and a half hours, but only about 55 minutes of it is actually usable. Uh, <laughs> but it's a great conversation. And again, you can find that pretty much everywhere fine podcasts live. And I've got a couple other great guests lined up for the new year as well. And now you and I have a spot coming up on a trivia podcast. We won't name drop it until we actually record it, but we are going to be doing some trivia about a Marvel cinematic universe film, which I don't know how we can get anything wrong. I'm so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, me too. Me too. And I have also no excuses. It's, it's a movie you've seen a thousand times and it's a PG podcast, so I cannot swear. So this is a dangerous <laughs> combination. It's a high pressure situation is what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was really looking forward to it. And then the realization of, of being tested on my love for my favorite film has, has begun to uh, eat away at me. I wanted Iron Man 3. I've seen Iron Man 3 so many times, but I'm glad you're the one under the gun here, not me. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if it was Endgame or, or uh, Infinity War, they're, they're the other two that probably run it close. Or Winter Soldier, actually, as well. I've seen that more times than a man of my age should have. <laughs> so, yeah, once that comes out, we'll let you guys know. But uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. That's it for news. And so, of course, I want to say if you'd like to join the Patreon, we do that at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. That's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. For as little as, uh, well, $5 a month gets you in the door to all the bonus stuff. You get uh, two weekly bonus shows. That's Host Adventures and Book of the Dead. And sh- while Host Adventures has, or pardon me, and while Book of the Dead has become a public show, it's only released every two weeks and there are seven months of weekly shows lined up. I think we are at volume 30 or 31. So you've got a massive archive of Book of the Dead shows to dive into. Host Adventures is very, very close to the same. There's me and Paul, the Sunken Library, um, so much other stuff. There's a shitload of content in the archive at patreon.com slash ghost story guys. And of course, as I mentioned at the top of the show, a dollar a month gets you an ad free feed. So you don't have to listen to the dynamically inserted ads because who likes ads? If you want to get in touch, shoot us an email, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. Again, send us your stories, your comments. We love hearing from you guys. We love hearing what you think of the show. I know we've had a lot of emails from new listeners recently, a lot of new patrons which is super cool. And so we love, love, love hearing from you guys. Again, that's ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ghoststoryguys, on Instagram as the ghoststoryguys, and we're also on Reddit as r slash ghoststoryguys podcast. So make sure to come on by, say hi, and check us out on YouTube. I'll put a link in the show notes. We're starting to drop more story packs on there. So it's just a uh, Anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes of uh, stories selected from other, from the show's history set against a, a background of soothing rain and slightly creepy drone music. Again, that's, that's on the YouTube channel. And of course, if you want to get in touch, but you don't want to type, you can always call the ghost line. There's something strange. Thanks to our listener, Amber Pease, for our ghost line jingle. Again, the number is one 588 6920 That's 1-888-588-6920. If you want to check out that new design we mentioned earlier in the show, head on over to our website, ghoststoryguys.com. Follow the links there to our Public stores. And we are just in the process of arranging a discount code for our patrons. And we may be having a sale as well. We're still kind of getting everything knocked into shape. You know, we didn't really pay much attention to the merch store last year. We just wanted to rebuild the show itself. But now that we're, we're up and running, we want to uh, start making that a little more accessible. So again, that's ghoststoryguys.com. Follow the link to our Public store. You can see all our designs and uh, all the good stuff you can get there. Our theme song, Radio, Into the Darkness We Go, is composed and performed by Peter Kursov of Pizanta Music. Find more from him at nightharvestrecordings.com or by searching for Pizanta Music wherever you get your tunes. Our story's theme is The Future Belongs to Them Now by Hexagram. Find more from them by searching for Hexagram wherever you get your music. Remember, that's Hexagram with two X's, not three. I guess that's going to do it. And we'll be back with a new show within two weeks. But until then, into the darkness we go.
noodles. So. Do I have to do my London accent? Oi! <laughs> That's cool, blimey. What's going on down here, then? See you in me, China. <laughs> <laughs> here, take a pony and get down the pub. Sort yourself out, <laughs> treacle. <laughs> I don't know treacle. Treacle, it's a, it's a, a dismissive term for a, an attractive woman. Yeah. Two pints I, of your best, treacle. Thanks very much. Yeah, it bothered me for a day. I was like, oh, hmm. I'm sure he, I'm sure he's fine with that. No, no, anything like that, you know. I'll always, uh, you know, just don't mention the Spanish Armada. Well, I got to throw out all my material for this episode. Yeah, and don't get me started on the Hundred Years' War. <laughs> What's the world coming to when you can't spout unknowledgeable bollocks on primetime television? It's disgraceful. 84,000 subscribers. That makes me sad in the pants, Paul. Hmm? Bollocks. What the fuck? <laughs> Anyways, moving on. They're breaking, <laughs> they're breaking trees. <laughs> I, the bare hands. Well, I'm starting to wonder. Well, I might be using a bear's hands. <laughs> I would it's love it if there's a bear, bear construction crew out there. <laughs> Hurry up, Tubby. <laughs> I just found some great shit in this bin. Hang on. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do Ghost Force next time. Yeah, I think my throat will be up for it by then. <clears throat> oh, look, see, I'm going to... Uh. Yeah, yeah, we don't want to kill you. <laughs> and then I turn up and, and Bigfoot's running a second-hand record shop in the middle of the woods. No one will ever believe you. <laughs> but we'll play some mighty fine tunes. You know what? If there's anyone on this planet who's going to end up spinning vinyl with Bigfoot, it's you. Well, I hope so. 